Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Star Cells and God. This is the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science and describe how these discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, God's character, and the reliability of the Old and the New Testaments. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is the organization that sponsors star cells in God. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, I invite you to go to our website, www.reasons.org. Also, you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then last but not least, please go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, and subscribe. Also, make sure you use the notification button so that you are alerted the next time an episode of Star Cells in God drops. Okay, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Hugh, oh, I forgot to introduce you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm joined in studio by uh, Hugh Ross, who is an astronomer and astrophysicist, the founder of Reasons to Believe. And you're going to be talking today about uh, time dilation in the universe uh, so hopefully this won't take too long. That is my really bad joke. <laughs> and then uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, the design of protein machines. So anyway, Hugh, why don't you go ahead and, and get us started? Well, let me start off with a quiz for you. Uh, okay. Okay, here's a quiz. What is the one equation that everybody in the world who's gotten past the third grade knows? It's probably E equals MC squared. You're right. I mean, I always thought it'd be something like F equals MA. And I use that, people have a blank stare in their face. But E equals MC squared, they know. It's not the quadratic equation. Nobody no. remembers. Well, you, I've always, always told in algebra, memorize this because you'll always use it. Well, you will, but... Uh, <laughs> E equals MC squared is the only equation I can count on people knowing. Yeah. And uh, people credit Albert Einstein with the brilliance for developing that equation. It's actually something that could be derived by any high school student who's got basic algebra under their belt. Mm -hmm. uh, where Einstein deserves credit is for his theory of general relativity. Mm -hmm. There you need to be fluent with tensor calculus uh, to develop that. But E equals MC squared, it's quite straightforward. It's easy to derive uh, just from uh, basic principles of physics. And uh, I do have an equation I'm gonna show you here. So we can pull up this slide on the screen. Uh, this equation you can derive from E equals MC squared. I'm not gonna show you the derivation. I thought it'd be fun to leave that for the audience. Yeah. Starting with E equals MC squared, you can come up with this equation. And basically this tells us that if Einstein's right about special relativity, uh, distant clocks in the universe will run slower. That's because we live in a Big Bang universe. And in a Big Bang universe, the universe is expanding. And uh, with a general expansion of the universe, a farther away a galaxy or a quasar is, the faster it'll appear to be moving away from us. And the faster it moves away, the slower clocks on that galaxy or quasar okay. will run. I mean, here's a thought experiment. We could actually send you to the Andromeda galaxy at 0.999% uh, the velocity of light. Uh, it would take you less than a year to get there. Uh, and, uh, you know, you might want to spend a year touring around there and come back. 
Uh, so you would come back a few years older. But if I wait for you to come back, uh, you know, clocks run slower for you than they do for me, uh, I would be 5 million years older because mm. it's two and a half million light years. I got to wait 5 million years. But you come back, you're only a couple of years older. You look great. Where's Hugh? He's been dead uh, for 5 million years. So that's kind of an example of what happens with time dilation. Mm -hmm. And it's this factor here. Uh, the clocks are run slower by a factor of 1 divided by the square root of 1 minus v squared divided by c squared. I decided to say it aloud because I know not everybody okay. is going to be right. watching this recording on video. So for audio, that's it. And v is the velocity of the galaxy relative to the Earth. Mm -hmm. So for example, that's how fast the way a galaxy is moving relative to us. C is the velocity of light. Now the effect that this has, if you can pull up the next slide, it basically tells you, okay, if we're looking far away and we're talking about looking like eight billion light years away, the expansion of the universe means that that object relative to us will be moving at about half the velocity of light. So if it's moving at half the velocity of light relative to us, the clocks in that galaxy are going to run about 15% slower. Mm -hmm. Or pardon me, this is for uh, 0.25. So one quarter of the velocity of light, which is like about six, seven billion light years away, it's gonna run 15% slower. But because of that square factor, mm -hmm. if you go to uh, say, uh, 0.9c, 9 tenths of velocity of light, which is what you're going to see if you're within the first billion years of the history of the universe. So galaxies that are, you know, 13 billion light years away, they're going to be moving relative to us at more than 90% the velocity of light. Now the time dilation factor is really substantial. That clock is going to run 526% slower. So it's going to be like five times slower uh, or more mm -hmm. than clocks here on Earth. Now, here's a problem that astronomers have faced. I mean, this is a major prediction of the Big Bang creation model. And the reason why I'm focusing on this, the Bible thousands of years ago mm -hmm. explicitly stated repeatedly at least three, if not four, of the fundamental features that we call the Big Bang model. And that's why when astronomers first discovered that the universe had Big Bang features, they said, we gotta get rid of this. It's, this is what the Bible says. And so those astronomers that weren't happy uh, with Christianity or the biblical message for a 50 year period, tried to find some way to get rid of the Big Bang. And so inherent in astronomy is the recognition. Big Bang cosmology mm -hmm. establishes the inerrancy of the Bible and the credibility of the Christian faith. But a major prediction of Big Bang cosmology is that distant clocks will mm -hmm. run slower. And they're going to run slower at precisely these predicted rates. Mm -hmm. And so one way to test the Big Bang is to look at clocks in distant galaxies and quasars and see if they actually run slower by the precise amount predicted mm -hmm. by the Big Bang creation model. So, and astronomers have been working on this for 30 years. Uh, the problem is the clocks that we're most familiar with, mm -hmm. you can't see them in galaxies far away. Uh. I mean, the best known clock is what's called a Cepheid variable star. Uh -huh. These are bright stars, and uh, 
the period with which they go through their oscillation, if it's a 40-day light period, that means it's much brighter mm -hmm. than if it's a three-day light period. And so they measure the period of the variation. They know how bright it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but with that time dilation, uh, those periods mm -hmm. are going to become longer. Okay. But the problem is we can only see Cepheid variable stars and galaxies that were within, say, 40 million light years of us. Okay. And if 40 million light years away, the time dilation effect is essentially zero. Right. Uh, the galaxies are not moving fast enough relative to the velocity of light to make a difference. And so we really need to find clocks mm -hmm. in galaxies that are billions of light years away. And the one candidate is what we call a type 1A supernova eruption. You know, when supernova explode, uh, the luminosity is as bright as the rest of the entire galaxy. Mm. For a period of a couple of months, that supernova will be as bright as 200 billion stars. So that means you can see them far away. Mm -hmm. In fact, astronomers have been able to see type 1a supernova as far away as 9 billion light years. Mm. Now, the next slide shows you the light curve of a supernova eruption in our galaxy. Okay. So, and this would be for the Andromeda galaxy, any nearby galaxy, the time dilation effect is trivial. And so they're all going to take about uh, six and a half to seven months to go through their light cycle. And uh, the light cycle of every type 1a supernova is the same, goes up the same amount of brightness and down. And so uh, a prediction of Big Bang cosmology would be type 1a supernova in galaxies seven, eight, nine billion light years away, we should see that instead of it being uh, a six and a half month mm -hmm. cycle, it's going to be eight months okay. or nine months. And so, you know, I mean, you get about a 10 to 15 percent time dilation effect, but that's measurable. Right. I mean, that's going to add about an, uh, you know, almost a month to the period. So astronomers have accumulated data on literally dozens mm -hmm. of type 1a supernova where they see this effect. Now, astronomers would love to be able to test this at great distances, because instead of getting a 10 to 15% effect, right. you get a 200, 300, 500, 600, 800% difference. It's a spectacular right. uh, difference. Uh, however, we don't have nice clocks like type 1a supernova. And so... W at what point in the universe's history would the stars appear that when they uh, supernova would be in, in the type 1 category? Because presumably that re the reproducibility of the light curve is reflecting the fact that these are the same kinds of stars Correct. that are, that are uh, exploding. Well, we would expect to see not type 1A but type 2 supernova, which don't have quite uh -huh. as regular a curve. Uh, but it's predictable. If you can identify the type of supernova, uh -huh. it has a predicted light curve. Okay. Uh, typically much shorter than what you see for a type 1A. Mm -hmm. uh, so it means it's going to be a little more challenging to measure, say, a 10% difference. Right. However, it's far enough away, and the type 2 supernovae are much brighter than the type 1A. So you can see mm. them a little farther away. Uh, but... Supernova, you can't see any supernova past about 10 billion light years. Okay. Uh, we don't have the telescope power to pick them up. Although there's some hope that the James Webb Space Telescope 
is going to be able to see supernova and galaxies, say, okay. 11 billion light years away. But so far, none have been detected. So the population, three stars that would be at that distance, will supernova, or at least they if they're of a, super, of a certain size, right? They will, uh, but even the James Webb Space Telescope is going to have a difficulty mm. seeing them because it's a single star you're looking at. Yeah. You know, James Webb can see full-formed galaxies at, say, 13.5 billion light years, but they're not going to see single mm. stars. And, uh, and moreover, supernova are not that frequent. Okay. Uh, we get maybe two or three per big galaxy per year. And so, uh, you know, if you look at millions of galaxies, you're going to see several per year. Mm-hmm. But that's typically what's happening. We see several per year. We don't see thousands per year. Yeah. So astronomers have been saying, okay, we need to come up with another database. And so uh, one that's been used is uh, gamma ray bursts. Because mm. gamma ray bursts, you can see those at uh, 12 billion light years out. And, uh, you know, the bursts last anywhere from a few milliseconds uh, to, oh, as much as, uh, you know, say 15 minutes, 20 minutes, somewhere in that range. Do we understand the mechanism now? Or do astronomers maybe understand the mechanism yeah, of gamma ray bursts? Yeah, it's one of these really big type 2 supernova eruptions. And uh, you can't see the light, but you can see the gamma rays. Okay. Because the gamma rays are compressed into a very short window, okay, uh, a few milliseconds oh, to a few minutes. So you can see these at great distances, whereas you can't see the light of the supernova because that for all is extended over a couple of months. Okay. And so the energy is spread out. With gamma rays, it's compressed, hmm. which is why we can see them at great distances. However, it's not as good a clock as the light curve that you see here. Right. Uh, and because with the gamma ray bursts, uh, the light curve can be anywhere from 10 milliseconds uh, to, say, about 20 minutes. However, if you've got a really large sample of gamma ray bursts, mm-hmm. you can use a statistical study. Okay, statistically, this is what the gamma ray bursts look like that are, say, from a billion uh, to eight billion light years mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So we kind of get a statistical sample, and if there's any kind of uh, time dilation effect, then the sample at, say, mm-hmm. uh, 10 to 13 billion years out should show mm-hmm. an average variation that's significantly greater. Mm-hmm. So that's been done. Uh, the problem is we don't yet have a big enough sample mm-hmm. of uh, cosmic ray bursts, and especially at great distances. I mean, we got a fairly good s- large sample at nearby distances, not so much at far distances. And so astronomers for the last 20 years and been trying to detect the time mm-hmm. dilation. But statistically, uh, they don't have enough of a database to be able to prove it. They can't disprove it. A lot of people say, well, maybe there's a way we can disprove the Big Bang. Right. Uh, but the data is not there to disprove it. But neither is it there to prove it. Although some astronomers think at least we're seeing a hint of the time dilation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me take you back, uh, G. 50 years, it's hard to believe. 50 years ago, I was working on my uh, PhD thesis. And uh, my PhD thesis was quasars in the distant universe. And uh, what I was aware of even back then is that the light curves of these quasars vary. Mm -hmm. Uh, We now know why the supermassive black holes 
that are responsible for the quasar emission uh, are accreting matter. Mm -hmm. And when they accrete a star, there's a burst, which causes the quasar to brighten, and then it dims down. And so you get these fairly rapid variations. By rapid, we're not talking like the gamma rays. We're talking uh, weeks to months mm. of variability. So the time scale is larger. Uh, variability over weeks or months. Mm -hmm. But I remember as a graduate student thinking, okay, uh, it seems like uh, these quasars with certain kinds of flat spectra all have the characteristic of being variable. I mean, that was my PhD thesis, flat spectrum radio sources. And so, and you can, you got a big sample, there's this average variability. And I speculated, well, the really distant ones according to Big Bang cosmology, we should see a longer average variability. Mm -hmm. Problem was, uh, back 50 years ago, our sample size of distant quasars, distant enough where this test could be done, was non-existent. Uh -huh. We could see the ones that were up close, we couldn't see the ones far away, and our sample size was in the, a few dozen. Uh -huh. Today, we have a sample size of quasars that's greater than a million. Oh, wow. So we got a huge database, it's not like the gamma ray bursts where we're looking at a few hundred. We're actually looking at a database of a million. Uh, nevertheless, astronomers struggle to see the time dilation effect, mainly because where you can actually measure the variability with some precision is much easier for the nearby ones. Mm. But the nearby ones, we're looking at maybe a 10 to 15% right. time dilation effect. And these are not clocks like supernova where every supernova has the identical right. frequency, uh, we have a variability in the frequency. And when you're dealing with statistical samples, even like a 10% difference could get washed out. It just, gets washed out, yeah. Just in the, the statistics The itself. statistical noise is bigger than 10%. Yeah. So, uh, which meant if we're actually going to see time dilation with quasar variability, we gotta look really far away. Because mm -hmm. if you look far away, you get a 500% effect right. as opposed to a 10% effect. Right. So that means uh, that you don't need that big of a sample to actually see, because a factor of five is huge. Uh, so, and this paper I just got uh, published in Astronomy and Astrophysics, mm -hmm. and it's the first time that astronomers have seen a definitive time dilation effect mm -hmm. in the variability of quasars. And uh, what this team of astronomers did is they said, okay, we're gonna collect a database of quasars that are variable uh, that are more distant than 12.8 billion light years, which means we're observing these quasars in the first billion years mm -hmm. of the history of the universe, where the time dilation effect is gonna be like a factor of two, three, four, five, or six. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, they collected a sample, and also these are quasars that are quite bright even though they're extremely distant, mm -hmm. uh, but bright enough that astronomers have a two-decade uh, measuring time. So they're actually measuring the variability over a two-decade mm -hmm. period, which means we've got an accurate measure of the time scale of variability, mm -hmm. and they had a sample of 197 quasars more distant than 12.8 billion light years, which means it is a significant sample. And what they report here is they saw a time dilation effect of, a, of an average of 500%. Wow. Which means it's unmistakable. 
Yeah. There's no way you can say this is a statistical fluke, a factor of five. It's just so dramatic. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's exactly what you would predict uh, from a big bang creation model mm. where the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Mm. So it's, I refer to this as a straightforward and direct test mm -hmm. of Big Bang cosmology. You know, there really aren't any assumptions involved here. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, again, another example of the Big Bang creation model spectacularly passing every test that's mm -hmm. been thrown at it. I can name 20 tests that astronomers have performed of Big Bang cosmology, but this is one of the most direct tests and one of the most spectacular examples mm -hmm. of observations proving indeed we live in a Big Bang universe, just like the Bible predicted mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. And as a sidebar, it's a dramatic refutation of young Earth creationism, because mm. the only way you're going to get this time dilation effect that we see mm. in uh, the supernova and the quasars is if the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. If the young Earth creationists are correct, uh, then the light curves of these supernova uh, should be a few seconds. Mm. They shouldn't be nine or ten months. Uh, if the universe is infinitely old, they're all going to look to be seven months. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we see the ones up close seven months, the distant ones eight, nine months, mm. is evidence we live in a universe approximately 14 billion years old. But the quasars uh, really give us a definitive measure that the universe has got to be about 14 billion years old. So that's the bottom line. Yeah, and 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 again, you know, the idea that the universe has a beginning, obviously Genesis one one, mm -hmm. Hebrews eleven three. Uh, yeah, you're not going to get time dilation if the universe has no beginning. Right. So, and the kind of time dilation you get depends on the age of the universe. Mm. So this tells us the universe can't be trillions of years old, mm. and it can't be thousands of years old. Uh, it's another. This isn't an accurate measure of the age of the universe, right? but it's a definitive measure that we live in a universe that's approximately 14 billion right. years old. Yeah, so the, the, the result is consistent with the, a universe of that age. Right, right. Yeah. So well, that's hopefully cool. this is a tool that people can use yeah. to share with their atheist friends or their young earth creationist friends yeah. or anybody just to say, you know what, the Bible's got predictive power. Yeah. It accurately predicts future scientific discoveries. Yeah, that's cool stuff. You, yeah. Oh, and you had one more image here I don't think we ended up putting up. Well, just that, I just wanted to show people what a quasar looks like. Okay, there we go. This is the first quasar was ever discovered. Neat. Uh, Alan Sandage has been here to our office. He's passed away, but he was the one that discovered this quasar, huh. 3C273. It's a quasar that is so bright you can see it through an amateur telescope. Oh, wow. So if you got, say, or even if you got a really big pair of binoculars and you're in a dark site, you can see this quasar. And uh, there's a galaxy uh, that surrounds this quasar, but the quasar is so extremely bright mm. that you really can't see the galaxy around it. And that, that little smoke trail you see out there, that's a relativistic jet that's uh. being pushed out by the quasar. And the quasar is basically a supermassive black hole uh, that's accreting a lot of matter. Mm -hmm. And as matter comes in towards the black hole, that matter gets converted into energy uh, with about 40% efficiency. Mm. 
which explains why we can see these quasars 12, 13, 13 and a half billion light years away. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, they just spotted a quasar uh, that's uh, 13. Uh, 0.5 billion lights. That's a record holder. Wow. So James Webb found it. Yeah. Yeah. Neat stuff, Hugh. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. That was a lot of fun hearing that. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to be talking about the, the computational design of, of protein machines. and uh, So we're going from the very big to the very small. Yeah. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we are. And, uh, you know, w- there are these truisms that we hear, right? Like, uh, the two that I'm going to talk about today is bigger is better. And then we also hear that bigger isn't always better. So, you know, which is it? And, of course, it's really context-dependent. Right. You know, and uh, so I thought we, we could have a little bit of fun. I would go through a few examples of, of things that are bigger or better if they're bigger and then a few things that are better if they're smaller. So yeah, I'm just going to show you the picture and you can let's see if you can guess. Okay, that sounds like fun. So these are all things that are better if they're bigger. Okay. Can you guess what that is? Well, I mean, that's a clock. The bigger the clock, the easier it is to see. Well, it's showing you your account balance. Okay, yeah. My, okay. <laughs> so the bigger, the bigger my account balance is, the better off I am. I yeah, I think that. everybody would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's one you may or may not agree with, but that's... No, I don't agree with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, but for most people, the bigger the piece of chocolate cake, the better. Well, uh, if you've got a group, big group that you need to share it with, I go along with that. <laughs> now, here's, here's another one. See if you can... This is a little bit... See if you can guess. Uh, the bigger the flag or the more stars that well, are in the flag. Well, this one is America. In yeah. America, bigger is better, right? So when most people in the world, when they look at America... They are a little bit befuddled by the fact that everything we do is always very big. Our portion sizes are bigger. Our houses are bigger. Our, our car- people are bigger, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So in America, bigger is better. Okay. This one uh, um, might be a little nuanced. Oh, big screen, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Than, yeah. yeah, okay. The bigger the screen, the better for right. a lot of people. Uh, this one's a little uh, touchy-feely. Uh, the bigger your heart? Yeah, or, right. or love. The bigger yeah. the love is, the bigger your heart. Okay, now here are a few things where smaller is better, right? Okay. So. Uh, debt, yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then. Uh, the U.S. should pay attention to this one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or Congress. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then here's another one. I see if you can guess this. Okay. Small one handful. Smartphone. Well, uh, portion sizes. Portion sizes. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, most people in America want big portion sizes, particularly when you go out to eat. But actually, if you want to live a healthy life, smaller portion sizes are better. This is something I'm beginning to, to learn to implement. Well, I also I like a small smartphone because it's easy to transport around. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That could be something else. Here's something that you and I think would both agree on. Uh, or th- maybe here it is, it's shorter is better than smaller. Well, I don't know. I kind of like flying on small planes because oh. they actually give you a little more room for your seat. Okay. So, and well, you get on and off the plane a lot faster. So I like small planes. Yeah. Well, this one I'm thinking uh, flight times. Flight times. Yeah. Okay. And here's one. Uh, Setting expectations, yes. The lower your expectations, <laughs> the less depressed you'll be. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And that's in, in and of itself depressing, but yes. And then, Especially on dating sites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> right, right. Okay. And then last but not least is uh, this one. Okay. I'm trying to figure out what we're Lists. Oh, lists. Yeah. yeah. The smaller the to-do list. Yeah, yeah. The shorter the list. The, the shorter the to-do list you get from your <laughs> wife, the better off you're going to be. That's right. <laughs> And then th- now, now for something serious. Okay. And and this is uh, a lot of chemists and material scientists, physicists, engineers, are of the opinion that smaller is better. And there's a, a push among scientists to try to miniaturize systems. Uh, and one of those areas where this is the primary focus is nanotechnology. All fuzz. Sixty-seven trillion transistors in this computer you got here. Yeah. How do you get 67 trillion com- transistors unless they're really tiny? Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, miniaturization is the is the and, and is the thrust, and nanotechnology was is the uh, the area in kind of science and engineering where the goal is to build really atomic scale machines and right. devices. Some of it involves arrangements of individual atoms. Some of it involves uh, designing molecular systems or supramolecular systems where molecules are interacting. But the goal is to build these devices at the nanoscale. And there are a lot of futurists who think this is um, going to lead to another industrial revolution. It'll impact industry, agriculture, medicine. So a lot of interest over the last 20 years or so in in nanotechnology. And there's a number of approaches that people are taking to try to understand how to build machines at this scale. They're basically manufacturing molecules, individual molecules. Right. And then also designing systems where those molecules are interacting with each other to form these stable complexes, yet they, but that have the the, the balance between stability and flexibility so that you can generate motion relative to, you know, to different components in that system. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of chemists and material scientists that are just trying to understand basic principles that would allow for nanotechnology. But another approach that people are using is to turn to biochemistry for inspiration. And the reason is, is because inside the cell, is this ensemble of molecular machines that are highly sophisticated, performing complex operations that are also highly integrated. And they're already manufactured. You don't have to make them. Right. So, so you know, scientists and, and, and engineers are studying these systems, number one, to just understand basic principles. Two, uh, in some cases, they're co-opting these machines and integrating them into nano devices, uh, and and uh, and so, you know, biochemistry is really highly inspirational for that reason. And th- there are two general approaches that are being used. One is to identify biomolecules that have unusual properties that can be exploited in non-natural ways uh, to to create nanomachines, and the other is to, to try to understand the, 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 these biomachines in and of themselves and use that understanding, again, to build nano devices. Now, one of the, the biomolecules that people are using uh, in non-natural ways in nanomachines is DNA, and, and there are some interesting reasons why DNA 
uh, is used in this way. DNA's role inside the cell is to store information. Uh, and it's, it stores information uh, in the sequence of genetic letters that make up its structure. DNA, I think for most people know this, but just in case people don't who are watching this, consists of two molecular strands um, where the molecular strands are built from subunit molecules. There are four that are called the nu uh, nucleotides, abbreviated A, G, C, and T. And those, those strands then align in a parallel fashion w to have a, a ladder-like architecture where the, the backbone is uh, the two strands are like the uprights of the ladder. The side groups that interact are like the rungs of the ladder. So that's shown in this particular diagram. But the interaction between the two strands is highly specific where an adenine subunit is always paired up with a guanine subunit on the opposite strand and a thymine subunit is always, uh, sorry, an adenine unit is always paired up with thymine, guanine is always paired up with cytosine. And so these are called the Watson-Crick base pairing rules. Uh, and this actually means that not only will DNA form these highly precise intermolecular interactions between strands, but can form highly precise intra-chain interactions. And that's illustrated in this slide, which is showing, it's a cartoon showing DNA replication at the replication bubble. But notice you have DNA where to, the two strands are, are precisely aligned. You've got single strands, you've got places where the same strand is pairing with itself to form these hairpin structures. And because of that, you can actually design DNA sequences to form very complex uh, architectural structures, taking advantage of these, uh, these properties, the base pairing specificity and the interchain and intrachain interactions. And so this is a whole area of nanotechnology called DNA origami. Hmm. So the top shows different geometric shapes that can be formed from rods that are interacting with each other. And then the electron micrographs below are actually DNA molecules that somebody has designed that interact with each other to form these very elaborate structures. So you can use DNA to build molecular scaffolding. Uh, and in fact, you can even use it to build molecular machines because DNA also has catalytic properties. Uh, because of the nature of the chemical groups involved. And because the bonds are already stable, you got a stable structure. Yes, right. But you can also get it to dissociate as well. But you get these very precise molecular interactions that allow directed assembly of DNA molecules into these very complex structures. And, and so that, that, that precise molecular recognition is really critical uh, in this process. Now, DNA also has another unusual property you can actually conduct electrical current along the interior of the double helix, which means people are exploring the use of DNA as a wire at, for, to build kind of nanoelectronics. Very interesting stuff. Uh, and this diagram is showing a DNA molecule conceptually linking two electrodes together. Mm -hmm. And if the DNA double helix is intact, current will flow. If it gets distorted, it disrupts the wire. So it's a very useful. So how do you solder the two ends? <laughs> well, you you it, you chemically attach them. Okay. Right, and and you probably have quantum tunneling going on, uh, you know, at a molecular scale. 
But you're telling me biochemists can actually do the attachments. Yeah. 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 You can you can chemically attach the DNA to these electrode materials and then the quantum, you know, and if, if there's a, you know, a, a polar, you know, a polarity between the two electrodes, you're going to get quantum effects, which will cause the electrons to hop into the double helix. And then it's actually a quantum tunneling effect that will transport it along the double helix to the other electrode. So pretty cool stuff. Uh, but anyway, this is one way in which people are developing nanomachines is, again, to, to find biomolecules with unusual properties and, and in, a very, in a very creative way exploiting those properties to build nano devices in a way it, that's very different, that's really non-natural compared to, in this case, how DNA is actually functioning inside the cell. Now, the other approach is to look at protein machines inside the cell that are carrying out very complex and elaborate operations and themselves are highly sophisticated machines. With proteins, you get a, a much greater versatility in terms of how you can combine component parts together to create a much greater array of machines. But here you're now looking at using proteins in the way that they are actually being used inside the cell. So this is really not only direct bioinspiration, but directly a biomimetic effect. And th there's a, a paper I'm going to be talking about in a minute, uh, but this is a quote that comes from the paper where they said, designed dynamic protein mechanical systems are of great interest given the richer functionality of proteins, but with this functionality comes more complex folding and a greater diversity of non-covalent interactions, which despite recent advances in design of static protein nanostructures has made the design of protein machines an outstanding challenge. So in other words, the holy grail of this is to, is to produce nanomachines that are built out of proteins that are novel, that are non-natural machines that are designed by humans and proteins give you that, that structural and functional diversity you need to have a very uh, expansive toolkit of options. But with that expansive toolkit of options and that rich functional and structural diversity becomes the headache of not really understanding the principles and what kind of variables you need to manipulate in order to do this. And just as a very quick review, uh, because this will be important as we talk about what this, these researchers did. Here's a very quick uh, overview of protein structure. Proteins are built from amino acids. To first approximation, there are 20 amino acids that are used to build proteins. Uh, these all have different chemical and physical properties. Uh, and so you, with the combinatorial possibilities of 20 amino acids, you can create a near infinite number of protein chains, and, um, and those protein chains can have a wide range of chemical and physical properties because of the, again, those combinatorial possibilities. But then uh, what happens is that that chain of amino acids will fold into a three-dimensional structure, and it's a highly orchestrated folding process that's done in a hierarchical manner where the backbone will fold it, it regions of the backbone will fold into these different conformations. The two most prominent would be alpha helices and beta pleated sheets that are shown there. Then those regions of that chain that have different 
conformations, either alpha helices or beta sheets, will interact in very precise ways to form what are called supersecondary structures or folds, then those in turn can interact to form domains that interact to form the overall three-dimensional structure of the protein. And then, then those protein chains that are folded can interact with other protein chains, either ones that are identical to it or different from it, to create complexes. Well, what you're telling me is that the biochemical engineer faces a challenge of trying to get the folds that he or she wants to see. Yes. Because this thing tends to fold on its own. Right, right. Now, to appreciate just the type of machine that you can build with proteins, we are going to take a look at a protein called ATP synthase. Uh, and, and this is another quote from the paper where they said, among the best studied and most sophisticated are protein rotary machines as the F1 motor or uh, of adenosine triphosphatase, it's also called ATP synthase, or mm -hmm. F1, F0 ATPase, or the bacterial flagellum, both of which contain axle-like and ring-like symmetrical protein components capable of constrained dynamic motion relative to one another. So these things consist of these protein components that, you know, that uh, you can, that interact, and that interaction now means that those components can move relative to one another around constrained degrees of freedom, uh, but you also have a rigidity to that structure where other motions are, are prohibited. But it leads to the ability to build a machine like ATP synthase. Uh, this is a cartoon, but you, what you have is this, this is a pro, this is actually ubiquitous. It's found in every organism on the planet to my knowledge. It's involved in generating uh, ATP molecules, which are used to power, uh, you know, the cell's operations. So it, because it's ubiquitous means it, it, it would have appeared very early in life's history from an evolutionary perspective in, in LUCA, maybe even in organisms before LUCA. But it consists of a, of a pie or like a cylindrical type structure embedded in the membrane. That's the motor where a flow of protons through channels in the motor, essentially it's electrical chemical energy, uh, will generate a rotation of a rotor, and that rotor has a cam at the right angle that interacts with the, the blue and green subunits, causing mechanical movement in a turbine-like action, a pumping-like action, and that mechanical movement drives the generation of, of a chemical compound, ATP which is a fuel molecule. But this is converting electrical chemical energy into mechanical energy back into chemical energy. Mm -hmm. So it's a very sophisticated machine. Uh, but what you see there are these hundreds of protein subunits that are interacting to make the, the F0 component. There's a large number that are interacting to form that rod-like structure that is the rotor, others that are interacting to form the cam, so this is, uh, you know, made up of a large number of protein subunits that are interacting to create this, this structure, which is, you know, again, just phenomenal. And this is a fun quote from Nick Lane. He's a, an, an atheist, also a biochemist and an original life researcher, and he's written a number of popular level books that are just exceptional books. One of them is The Vital Question. 
And in the book, he talks about ATP synthase, and this is his statement. It's the most impressive nanomachine of them all. Uh, it's a rotary motor in which the flow of protons turns a crankshaft, which in turn rotates a catalytic head. The protein works like a hydroelectric turbine. This is barely poetic license, but a precise description. Yet it is hard to convey the astonishing complexity of this protein motor. This is precision nanoengineering of the highest order, a magical device, and the more we learn about it, the more marvelous it becomes. Some see it as proof for the existence of God. I don't, but it undoubtedly is a wondrous machine. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, you know, I use this as an argument that there must be a creator that's responsible for the origin and the design of life because of just the eerie similarity between this machine and the machines that we would build. Question, Fuzz. Has any biochemist been able to duplicate the manufacture of this machine? So it hasn't been done. And we'll, we'll, that's going to be part of the point okay, okay. I'm going to make. But, but no, that's a great question. Now, one way that you know, ATP synthase uh, is, in, an ins, is kind of like the gold standard. It's the inspiration. By studying this molecule, you know, hopefully we, uh, principles can emerge that begin to, that can be applied to build nano machines from proteins. But just for fun, uh, this work is now probably easily 20 years old. Uh, a research team looked at actually using ATP synthase uh, as a motor in a nano device. And so this is a proof of principle study where they chemically attached ATP synthase to a machine surface. And then using this, uh, this the, the, these protein linkers, they were able to link to the rotor an actin filament. And then by adding ATP or inhibiting ATP hydrolysis, they could get the rotor to rotate or pause its rotation. This is like a nano helicopter, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the idea is that if, you know, how do you generate movement in a nano machine? And it's not an easy thing to do to, because you want that movement to be regulated, to be, to be um, controlled. And so the idea here is that, well, if we can't build it, why not just take what nature is already so providing grab us? grab the uh, motor yeah. from a living system, yeah. put it on this uh, platform, and then they attached a device to it yeah. that it could move. Right. That raises another question. You need really sophisticated tweezers to be able to grab one of these things. Well, it's, it's biochemical <laughs> techniques yeah. where there, there are techniques to purify the enzyme. And then you, again, would modify it chemically so that it's going to chemically attach. So most of this is just biochemistry, believe it or not. So they refer to these people as nanosurgeons? Yeah, yeah. something like that. Okay. Well, th that leads us to this paper that I want to talk about, which, which is actually published a little bit over a year ago. I end up having all these papers that sit in stacks on my desk. Oh, you too. <laughs> I, I have that same problem. <laughs> you know, and then I kind of flip through, which would be, a, which would be fun to talk about. And so... So, so this isn't cutting edge in the, in the sense that it's about a, a little bit over a year old, but still it's, it's a remarkable study uh, by scientists from uh, Washington University in Seattle. And they had this idea of building a very crude, uh, primitive protein machine from scratch, you know, not in, uh, using, again, the inspiration of ATP synthase. And so this is a, a cartoon on the left of what they conceived their primitive machine to look like is essentially going to be an axle and a rotor. Mm -hmm. 
where the rotation was going to be driven by Brownian motion. They weren't even looking at how do you create, you know, um, directed or controlled motion. They're just relying on Brownian motion where you have an axle and a rotor, very simple design, and then a couple of end plates that kind of keep Hmm. it all intact. And then they, they began to design what the protein's components would look like. And so that's what you see on the right-hand side. So they used essentially the, the, this AI-powered computational software to design uh, protein components that would then be ideally suited to assemble uh, on their own into pr- these protein machines. So, for example, and this is, and they they designed a, a lot of different variations of this machine, but here's just three examples of how they looked to build the rotor. They reasoned, well, if you had an alpha helix that was continuous and formed a circle, that would be an ideal rotor. Of course, you can't m- make a protein like that uh, in real life. So, what you, you so none of these they made from scratch. No, these are made. These are they're all made from scratch. Yeah. So these are. Th- this is an example of some of the things they designed. Okay. So, you know. So they, they. You. You can under. It's. You can design an alpha helix from first principle. We know enough about which amino acids tend to form alpha helices, which don't, and you can select and choose the amino acids that you want to create different surface structures, uh, different interfacial <laughs> regions, uh, which is what they were doing. Um, and, and so are they grabbing uh, groups of molecules or individual molecules? Right now, this is all, this is all being done in situ okay. or, 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 in, or in silico, sorry. This is all computer modeling. I get it. Right. Okay. So, but this is, this is essentially laying out their... So this is a blueprint. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what they decided to do in the first example as well, if you could make three alpha helices so that the interface between the helices is highly involves highly specific interactions, then once you've synthesized them, they would spontaneously assemble into a ring, and then you could design other protein structures that would interact, you know, with at the interface between the, the different helices and create this rotor-like structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, by adding an additional alpha helix, alpha helix you can expand the, di- the, the diameter of that rotor, and then the, the one on be- below is they're looking at the interactions of the helices not being end-on-end, end, but where one end will interact with the, 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 the barrel of the alpha helix to create kind of this rotor-like structure. Uh, so these are just some examples of how they were going about the design. Here's a couple of examples of how they were looking at developing the rotor. One of them is just getting three protein chains that would interact in a, mm-hmm. like a triple alpha helix. Uh, and then you could attach to the ends uh, through interfacial interactions these, uh, again, these, these uh, um, what would you call them, these propeller-like structures made up of three different uh, you know, protein subunits. This one on, on the, 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 the one on panel B is taking alpha helices and interdigitating them together into a larger rotor where they're interacting kind of in a head-to-head manner or head-to-tail manner. So then what they once they had the blueprints in place, they then knew what the amino acid sequences were for the different subunits, 
and they literally synthesized DNA as a synthetic gene that they incorporated into E. coli. And then the E. coli expressed these proteins. They were able to purify them and then get them to assemble in a test tube. So they got the E. coli to do the manufacturing for them? Uh, just to make the proteins. Yeah. Right. But, but then the, they isolated them. And, and because of the design, they're going to spontaneously assemble into these structures. And so this is showing uh, on the, the left mm -hmm. of each one of these hypothetically what that, that structure should look like if it's properly assembled. And then these are electron micrographs of what they actually uh, were able to assemble in a test tube. So they actually are showing that in principle, you can start with these computational designs and build these components where you can create variability in the components, you know, and then have them combine in different ways to create. In this case, it's a, it's a pretty simple machine that's being powered by Brownian motion. Uh, so on one hand, you might say, well, this isn't that big of a deal. But on the other hand, it's, this is a huge milestone in terms of really and designing. The why they're using E. coli is it's the best understood? Yeah, it's just a very handy, convenient, you know, uh, bacteria that we probably know more about E. coli's biology than human biology. Right, right. And it's used as a workhorse molecule to do this kind of work anyway, where people incorporate foreign genes into E. coli all the time and use it as a bioreactor to produce protein. So, you know, it was... It's an interesting little factory that we can take advantage of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But now where, you know, where, what was interesting about this work is from the, from the study, they actually were able to, to develop a set of principles. And what turns out to be key is the interfacial interactions with the different subunits because you want, again, to, it to be a highly precise interaction but you want that, and you want that interaction to be strong so that it'll drive self-assembly, but you also want to give it enough freedom so that the component parts can move relative to one another if that's what's needed. And so they, they discovered that symmetry is a very important variable, uh, the, the complementarity of molecular shapes, which, again, you have to design uh, you know, th through that the computational software that they've developed. Also, the chemical interactions, the hydrophobicity, can you get electrostatic interactions that will help to stabilize it? Surface area is also very important. And then uh, also the side chain interactions are, are really critical. So they, they are understanding now what the variables are, but these have to be precisely fine-tuned in order to get those interactions to be what to balance a high affinity at and at the same time giving you the degrees of freedom that you need for these machines components to move relative to one another so it's a it's a pretty remarkable uh, accomplishment that they achieve now what does this have to do with <laughs> with, with god's existence well you know we talked about atp synthase before and I've written about that in my book, The Cells Design, and blog articles. It's a, it's a very powerful uh, example of the types of machines that you see inside the cell in terms of their elegance and their sophistication. But what interests me the most is how similar the design of ATP synthase is to the, the designs that we would create as human beings. And we know that... When, that the motors that we make are the work of human designers. 
And when we see machines in the cell that are eerily similar to the machines we would build, it revitalizes Paley's old watchmaker argument. Now, the chief criticism against the watchmaker argument would be, well, evolution can produce these kinds of systems, right? That these are just, that, that evolution has this capacity over vast periods of time to evolve these sophisticated systems. Well, because ATP synthase is number one, universal, there's not a lot of time for this machine to evolve because we now have very good evidence that LUCO is probably on Earth even at around 3.8 billion years ago, maybe even earlier than that. And so there's not a lot of time for this to evolve. And this is, again, one of the most sophisticated protein machines You're that we have. You're going from a period of time when Earth is very hostile right. to life chemistry to where now you've got liquid water, you've got solid rocks. Mm -hmm. But the moment you've got liquid water and solid rocks, you've got life. Right. And it's sophisticated at the outset. And with ATP. With, with, yeah, with the ATP synthase. It's not just ATP, but the synthase, the, the machine that makes it. But so that... but. Secondly, um, the second challenge is, but look at what it took these scientists to create very crude, you know, protein Analogies, motors yeah. that on one hand would be heralded as science at its very best. And on the other hand, you know, are, is laughable compared to the sophistication of ATP synthase. But to design this, they first of all relied on really decades and decades and decades of work of scientists that have come before them that have developed an understanding of biochemical principles sufficient that they even began to know how to develop computer software to go in then and do the computational work needed to design these. These were They were not just sitting down at a blackboard saying these are the, the subunits that we need and this is the amino acid sequences. They were using AI-powered, you know, computational systems that are that are probably being fed training sets of of different types of protein structures that are then being used to to then direct the design of these you know protein components it's not designed from scratch it's basically where they're copying designs they already know about right and to determine how they should go about making a design but the designs are so sophisticated that you need ai technology to right. even know how to copy them right right, <laughs> right. you know and then you're, you're producing these these components that have to have these highly precise highly fine-tuned interactions and they've identified maybe a handful of of variables that are critical, there's probably a lot more. The more sophisticated these machines are going to be, you know, that they design, the more the variables are going to come into play, right? And so when you look at, at the amount of intellectual effort that it took to and knowledge it took to and and the use of AI technology to design these things, you know, it really begs the question is an unguided evolutionary process going to assemble something that is orders and orders of magnitude more sophisticated than what they've been able to produce in something like ATP synthase? So to me, this really undermines an evolutionary explanation. Or to maybe phrase it more positively, if this is the amount of intellectual effort it takes to design very crude protein machines, clearly there's got to be a superior intellect that's responsible for biochemistry. It's an argument there has to be a mind behind life. Yes. Uh, mindless mechanisms aren't going to produce these results. Right. 
And we need a mind that's better funded than the minds that <laughs> wrote this paper. Right. Or with better technology. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and this is exciting stuff because, you know, uh, obviously, the you know, one of the next steps is how do you generate, you know, coordinated, directed motion in these machines at will. But also they're looking at designing other protein components so that you have a library of components eventually that you can combine and recombine kind of like Legos to build different types of nanomachines. So it's very exciting work that's going to have, you know, huge implications in terms of advancing nanotechnology but the theological implications are, are through the roof, too, right, uh, when you look at this kind of work. And only in the 21st century have we had the combination of intellectual talent, technology, and funding to yeah. make this even possible. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, smaller is actually better, yeah. right? But uh, bigger is better when it comes to the funding of a project like this. So. It sounds like smarter is better, too. <laughs> yes, it is, right? <laughs> All right. Anyway, so that's all I've got for this. So uh, that's that's incredible, Fuzz. Yeah. Well, this was I'm a fun impressive. episode. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, people have enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much for watching uh, Star Cells and God today, and we would love to hear your comments. Uh, uh, did you like what you saw? What could we do better? Do you agree with our conclusions? Do you challenge what we're saying? Uh, please uh, let us hear from you. Also, um, remember to go to our website, reasons.org, check out the resources we have there, follow us on social media, and go to our YouTube channel and subscribe, Reasons to Believe is the channel, uh, and then also use the notification button so that you are alerted when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops, which is every Wednesday, and also uh, Star Cells and God is available on your favorite podcast app. So remember... Uh, the more we know about science, the more that we have reasons to believe. Until next time.